Uh, it'd be helpful if you had Malachi uh, open, I think, this morning. <clears throat> Negligence, weakness, our own deliberate fault. Words that Christians have said in their confession for centuries. We said them this morning. Negligence, weakness, our own deliberate fault as we confess our sins. And it covers all the, I think it covers pretty much all the examples of where it is that we fall short. Uh, for a current illustration, you could apply it to penalty taking. Um, was it negligence? Was it weakness? Was it deliberate? Who knows what backhander he might have taken? We don't know, do we? But they cover the ways in which we fall short. Sometimes it's because it's neglect. We just haven't paid enough attention. Or it's weakness, that we just lack the, the, well, some would say the moral fiber or the courage to do what we know is right. Sometimes we're willful and we deliberately disobey. And as we say those words in the confession, and as Christians have for centuries, we're acknowledging that we do fall short. And that's one of the ways that the Bible talks about our sin falling short. Paul in Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of what we're created for, to be images of God, to to look like Him, to bring glory to Him when people look at us, to think that God is great because we're made in the image of God and we fall short of the glory of God through negligence, weakness, our own deliberate faults. But what about the people of God as a whole? The whole Christian church. Negligent, weak, deliberately disobeying. Well, the people of God... Uh, always do and always have. There's only really one story in the Bible and it's told in two verses in chapter 3 of Malachi, verses 6 and 7. Here's the one story. I, the Lord, don't change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time your ancestors, of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees, you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The one story. The God who does not change. The God who has pledged himself to his people. Therefore, they're never destroyed. Even though his people are full of Uh, negligence, weakness, and deliberate fault. And still the invitation, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. As his people wander off, so he invites us back. Malachi began with that very same truth. Chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. 
And I don't change, says the Lord. I have loved you. Well, how has the Lord loved his people? They ask in verse, right back at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And he explains his pledge. He has committed himself to his people. And it's because his people don't know how loved they are that we discover all the things that are wrong, all the the things that they do in weakness or through negligence or through their deliberate fault. Behind all the wrongs in God's people, whatever we think might be, if you ask the question, "What's what's the biggest problem with the church today? You might have all sorts of answers to that question. What Malachi is saying, fundamentally behind all those weaknesses and problems with God's people lies a lack of understanding of how he has loved us. And like any kind of, well, like most diseases, there are symptoms which show that deeper problem. And that's what we've been thinking about over the last uh, couple of weeks in Malachi so far. We've been seeing the symptoms of not knowing how God has loved us. There's one story. God has loved his people. He doesn't change. His people keep rebelling, but he invites us to return. Why do his people keep rebelling? And Malachi starts by saying, well, it's because you haven't worked out how you have been loved. And the symptoms of not knowing how God has loved us uh, are really uh, summed up in this this language of half-heartedness that we've been talking about. A half-hearted attitude to various things. Um, You can begin filling in your uh, sermon outline at this point if you want. A half-hearted attitude to, and then there are a few things, but I just want to think about that idea of being half-hearted this is, the, this is the great symptom of not knowing well enough or not remembering well enough or not reminding ourselves often enough of how we are loved by God. The symptom of that is half-heartedness. A half-hearted attitude. Um, it means really a divided heart. If you're half-hearted for something, you must be half-hearted for something else. So to be half-hearted is to have a divided heart. The psalmist prays for an undivided heart. James, in the New Testament, speaks of double-mindedness. A a half over here and a half over here. And in James, that's, that's described as having a foot with God and his people, but also having a foot in the world and the ways of the world. A bit of both. And we've seen that, haven't we, about half-heartedness. That half-heartedness looks like, sort of, yeah, I'm I'm kind of for God, but I don't want to be too keen. I'm definitely not against God. I I want to be for him. So neither too positive, 
nor too negative. So we're a bit suspicious of people who seem to be all out for God, but we're also cynical about people who are totally against God. We don't want to be either of those. We just want to be half-hearted in the middle. That's a symptom of not knowing how much God has actually loved us. And in the people of Malachi's day, that's been expressed in a half-hearted attitude to offering. Sacrifices, the things that should be done for God. And we saw that could be sacrifices of praise or sacrifice expressed in serving God's people. Uh, The giving of one's whole life, half-heartedly done, not wholly done. Um, and also in, in the giving of what we have in terms of, uh, in terms of money and time and talents. A half-hearted attitude to offering. A half-hearted attitude to leadership. The leadership at the beginning of chapter 2 doesn't do its job as it should uh, in Malachi's day. The leaders fall short, but the people are happy to live with that. That's actually going to reflect on the whole nation, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 9. And a half-hearted attitude to faithfulness. He particularly talks about marriage and the desire for the next generation to be faithfully raised in the ways of the Lord. But he's talking about faithfulness in all our relationships. A half-heartedness towards that. Now, if we recognize ourselves in any of that, uh, that would be perfectly normal because this is the one story that is told. The Lord doesn't change in his love towards us. But ever since the time of our ancestors, we've turned away through weakness, negligence, through our own deliberate faults. And the root cause is that because we've, we've not understood, we've not concentrated enough, we've not thought enough, we've not reminded ourselves enough of how God has loved us. Well, if this is, if this is the one story of God's people, uh, through the whole Old Testament, and we see reflections of it in, the, in, in our own lives as well, God's people through all the ages. How do you break the cycle? Well, we've been seeing the answer to that as well. And that's the perfection, the love, and the gift of Jesus. As everybody knows, Jesus is the answer. His perfection. So he came and perfectly made those offerings that were due to God. In his life, he perfectly offered himself. Whether it was a sacrifice of praise, whether it was in the service of other people that he came across as he lived amongst us, whether it was uh, the things that he had that he could give, the whole of his life, he properly honoured his Father in heaven. There was no half-heartedness in his living or his attitude. 
is perfection. He did it all wholeheartedly. He is, that is why he is this great, this great bright light in the midst of the one story of the rest of us. His perfection. And his love. Because the one unique aspect of his um, offering of his life was his offering of his life on the cross when he died. He was the perfect leader for us. He was perfect in faithfulness. He was perfect in offering himself. He loved us and gave himself for us. Perfect in all the ways that the people of Malachi's day had fallen short, but then that unique aspect of being an atoning sacrifice for those very weaknesses which the people had shown and the forgiveness which comes with that. The perfection of Christ, the love that he showed to die for us, but then the gift that comes from that for us, which is both forgiveness, but also the gift of righteousness and the life of the Spirit. So this is how the cycle is broken. Something happens when the Lord Jesus comes who perfectly lives and dies for his people and then gives us power to live different. He clothes us in his righteousness and by the power of his Holy Spirit we are able to set about afresh a way of living wholeheartedly for him because he gives us new hearts his spirit has been poured out into our hearts that we might know his love better and live for him paul will pray that we might have power to grasp how great god's love is in ephesians 3 so the coming of jesus strikes right at the root problem that the people of Malachi's day are experiencing. They don't know how God has loved them well enough. But we have opportunity in Christ to know that more clearly. That's what Paul prays for the Ephesian people. Clothed in his righteousness now, in him, able to make offerings, able to consider leadership, able to live faithfully in better ways by his kindness, his gift. Well, that's all by way of introduction. Now we get to chapter 2 and verse 17. Because Malachi is going to carry on through the rest of his book. There are two more symptoms of not knowing God's love well enough uh, this, uh, today, and there's more, uh, at least one more, next week. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them? Or, where is the God of justice? Now, the first new symptom today, a half-hearted attitude to God's justice 
This is really to say that we, we tend to like God's justice when it suits us. Um, I, I've, I can think of another football illustration. You get a favourable decision from the referee, that's fine, doesn't matter if it's just or not. Unfavourable, where is justice? They say. Isn't that exactly how we function? Turn a blind eye to something. I might even say it's not wrong. I might even say God approves of it because it's worked and it suits them and it suits me and it makes, seems to make everything better. But if it doesn't suit me, where's the God of justice? That rings true, doesn't it? All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them if it suits me. Where's the God of justice? If that's what suits me. I couldn't help thinking of statues and the, the tearing down of statues. Um, and yeah, so there seems to be something absent from the conversation where, with the tearing down of statues. Is one of the statues that we're building today that are going to need tearing down in a hundred years? Or are we so right that nobody will look back on our generation and think, oh, that statue needs to come down? That lack of recognizing that God's justice must come to us too. As I tear down somebody else's statue, what are the reasons that someone might tear down my statue? I'm not expecting a statue, but you see the idea. See, just calling on justice when it suits us is very dangerous. And God says, be careful. Because what if the God of justice actually turned up? Where would that leave you and me if the God of justice actually turned up? Because that's what Malachi prophesies will happen. I'll send my messenger who'll prepare the way before me. We know that's uh, John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. Not some delegate but the Lord of justice will come to his temple. The temple being the place of God's presence and God's rule. And he will enforce the relationship with his people. He will be the messenger of the covenant. And the people say that they want him to come, you whom you desire, end of verse 1, but, verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? See, what if the God of justice really turned up? Where would that leave us? Who can endure the day of his coming? So if we're only interested in justice when it suits us, we might find ourselves in trouble 
on the day of true justice? Who can stand when he appears? Because there's a purification that's needed. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So ideas of purity and purification, the refiner's fire, a laundress soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Well, he did come. And he did suddenly come to his temple. And he purified the temple when he came to it. You can read about it in John chapter 2 but he went further even than that this was not a this was not a good day for God's people and the temple in one sense because he came to purify but he went further than that Jesus answered them destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. With the purification of that stone temple, the presence and the rule of God were now to be found in Jesus Christ and not in that building. And it's knowing that the presence of rule rule of God can be found in Jesus Christ that makes verses 3 and 4 possible. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. The way of being with God And offering everything to him will be restored by Jesus who came and purified the temple and said, actually now, the presence and rule of God is found in me, not in that building. So we need to be careful. If we're asking for justice and not remembering Jesus Christ at the same time. We need to be careful about asking for justice because look what happens when it comes, verse 5, so I'll come to you and put you on trial. I'll be quick, says God, to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. It's not an exhaustive list, but it gets to the heart, doesn't it? These are all symptoms of a heart that does not fear the Lord. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I will come and put you on trial. We need to be careful if we're asking for justice. It's one way, uh, one way, one way uh, the gospel has been described is this, which is, I think is, is very helpful. Um, the gospel is that God will destroy all evil 
without destroying me. See that? See, well, that's such good news because it allows us to be honest about ourselves that since the time of our ancestors, we've turned away and we've not kept the Lord's decrees. He'll destroy all evil without destroying me. His justice doesn't change. What pleases him and the standards that he has doesn't change. He knows what pleases him. And he'll suddenly come. And who can endure that day? Well, only the one who has found shelter under the Lord Jesus Christ and is part of his house, his temple. He's found that forgiveness which comes through the perfection, love and gift of Jesus. So let's not be half-hearted about justice. It's right to be wholehearted about justice. But the only way we can be wholehearted about justice is if we remember that Christ has died for us. That gives us a humility in our, in our drive for justice in the world. We won't be seen as arrogant. We might be seen as arrogant, but we won't be arrogant. We won't be saying we're better than anybody else. We'll simply be seeking justice in the only way that it's safe to do that, knowing that I've been spared justice because Christ died in my place. See, if we know God's love in Jesus for us, we don't need to be half-hearted about justice. And finally, God's uh, a half-hearted attitude, the second symptom, a half-hearted attitude to honouring God. God issues the, return to, the, the invitation, return to me. How? They say, how are we to return to you? Stop robbing me. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? It's amazing how sin blinds us. The, 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 you see the people there. Jesus, uh, Malachi keeps speaking to them what's going wrong. And they go, well, how's that the answer? How are we robbing you? Because they're not offering the full tithe. They're the, the commanded gifts in the Old Testament to be brought to God. So they're half-hearted in honouring God. Not offering the full tithe. There'll be all sorts of reasons for that. All sorts of reasons why they, 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 they just don't think they can afford to be generous towards God and to honour Him. Uh, almost all of them will be about having one foot in God's camp and keeping one foot in the world. or whatever their reasons or excuses, they are half-hearted because they've lost sight of God's love for them again. Because if they, if they remembered his love, if they remembered his word and his promise to them, then they could afford to be wholehearted 
in their giving and their tithing. Because God had promised to bless them. You read about it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where they're given this choice between blessing and curse if they follow him wholeheartedly. Blessing will be theirs. And so God says here, don't be careful about this. Be careful about asking for justice if you've not recognized your need for Jesus. Be careful about that, but don't be careful about testing me in this. He invites them. Test me in this, he says, verse 10. If you do serve me wholeheartedly, see, I will, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Won't get destroyed. Won't fall off and not get used. And all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God is saying, bet everything you have on me. That's what he's saying. Bet everything you have on me. Know my love. Trust me. That will lead to your blessing and all the world will see how blessed you are. I do not change. Return to me and I will return to you. Don't be careful in repentance and in honouring God. Don't rob me. That half-hearted, not too positive, not too negative. Honour me. And of course, not robbing God now means not robbing Jesus. Jesus said this later on in John's Gospel. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That's the justice idea we've been thinking about. That all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father. It's not possible now to honour God and not honour Jesus. I should also have included the next verse in John's Gospel which says this, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Test God in this, Malachi tells us. Test God in this, that if you honour him, recognise him and turn to him, you will not be judged. You have crossed over from death to life. You see how again, it's knowing the perfection, love and gift of Jesus that allows us to honour him freely. This is the very good news of Jesus. Everything where Malachi's here is a falling short, Jesus resolves for all who trust in him. He perfectly expresses God's justice. He perfectly expresses honouring God. He dies in our place because we don't. 
And with his forgiveness and clothed in his righteousness and given the gift of his spirit, we are set free to live more wholeheartedly without any fear of condemnation for God. We ought to be people who are more serious about justice than anyone else in the world. But only because we've had one who's died for us to forgive us our sin. And we ought to be more confident in returning to the Lord, in repentance and in honouring him than any other people in the world. Because we've we've uh, moved over from death to life in the Lord Jesus. To freely, constantly and fully honour him. The only way we will ever do that is to know more deeply, to think more often, to, 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 to carefully reflect and meditate on these words of God to us. I have loved you. The church did that. Then we'd have far, far fewer issues to deal with in our life together. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, as Paul taught us to, that you would please give us power to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is your love for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, granting us that power to grasp your love for us, May that be so that we might live wholeheartedly for you. To live for justice, not in self-righteousness, but knowing what Christ has done for us. And to honour you with our whole selves. You have taken us from death to life. Father, we hear your invitation to test you in this. To see that it is true. That as we turn our hearts more and more towards you, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. We don't earn it, Father, we don't add to it, but as we test you, we discover that we already have it in our Lord Jesus. Father, grant us wholehearted commitment to you. In his name we pray. Amen.